If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? One thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories that help explain your world. Find Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the author of a new book about the Trump administration called OMG, WTF, LOL. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Tim O'Reilly, the author of a new book, WTF? What's the future? And why it's up to us. What a trick, Tim. It's how the digital revolution will continue to shape the world and disrupt old institutions. Tim is the founder of O'Reilly Media and has been a longtime advocate of causes like open source software, the maker movement, and open data in government. Tim, welcome to Recode Decode. It's great to be here. All right, so we're going to talk about this new book. Why don't you explain, what are you doing now? You're doing all kinds of things. Well, first off, I mean, I'm still deeply involved at O'Reilly Media, although I'm acting probably more like executive chairman than CEO. Uh, Laura Baldwin uh, is doing a fantastic job running the company today, our our, our president and COO. And uh, it's really become an online learning platform. You know, publishing is down to about 20% of our business. Mm -hmm. Another 30% is uh, events. And the other 50% is Safari, which is, you know, morphed from being a platform for eBooks to really including, you know, thousands of hours of video training, live in-person training, and a lot of other services. And so that's really the heart of our business today. All right. And then what do you do? What well, do you- and I, I've been basically spending a lot of time uh, working with my wife's nonprofit, Jen Polka started Code for America, mm-hmm. uh, which is really about how do we bring sure. the best practices of the digital age uh, to government. And we're working increasingly on how do we make the social safety net work better. A lot is just about instrumentation, mm-hmm. things that we take for granted in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. you know, where you know, you know why people fall out of your pipeline, whereas mm-hmm. government basically is trying to provide this service and it doesn't work and they don't know that it doesn't work or why it doesn't work for their, you know, their customers. And so effectively, we have a strategy that Jen calls apps to ops, which is building apps so we can follow the users and then give feedback into the government so they can actually fix their processes. Right. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) You know, there's been a big effort in the Trump administration, but it's sort of been waylaid uh, because all the business leaders have abandoned it. Yeah. It's always hard going up against entrenched competitors in a market like government that is not Oh, I don't think that's the problem. I think there's hair on fire and everything else. And I don't think Chris and his team have had the, and now the business leaders have sort of abandoned the effort too at the same time. They were trying. They've been trying to do that transformation of government. So the Obama administration. I think those are the two. So the other thing I've really been working a lot on is just thinking about and writing about and speaking about uh, really the impact of technology on the economy. And that's really the the point of my book. Uh, I see we're both using the WTF uh, moniker, as is uh, Reid Hoffman uh, and uh, Mark Pinkus. It's when the future. Yours, what's the future? And mine is what the fuck. Well, mine is also what's the fuck, what the fuck, too, because what I basically say is— Oh, you want what the fuck? All right, it's not in that title there. No, no, we can share it. No, uh, uh, the real point that I try to make is that, you know, WTF is an expression either of amazement or dismay. Mm -hmm. And technology can give us both. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, it often is. And and the, the— you know, I'm kind of saying, well, what's the future? 
you know, the WTF can be the WTF of amazement or the WTF of dismay, and it's up to us to decide which one we want. All right. So explain, let's go through the book. Let's talk about what you're trying to do and uh, go through some of the themes in it. Why don't you sort of broadly think what got you to do it and what you're, how you're thinking about it and, and stuff like that. Well, uh, a big part of it really is trying to avert what I see as a coming disaster, not only for the tech industry, uh, but also for uh, our economy as a whole. Uh, you know, I started working on my next economy summit about three years ago, you know, mm-hmm. long before, you know, the current situation was coming to a boil where mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, Uber clearly bad guy, mm-hmm. Google starting to be seen very much as a bad guy. Mm-hmm. You could see it coming, mm-hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, we basically have forgotten despite all the rhetoric about serving our customers and serving users, that, you know, technology is embedded in society in profound ways. And you would see people casually making statements like, I'm going to disrupt such and such. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one, inve- one investor recently who said to me, oh, I've invested in an AI startup that's going to eliminate 30% of call center jobs. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why are you talking about eliminating those jobs. Have you spoken to a call center recently? Were you satisfied with mm-hmm. the service? Why aren't you talking about making it better? Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to Abby Johnson at Fidelity and she was like saying, I want, you know, AI to help me make my call centers better. They, they, yeah, but the you know, goal is to get rid of jobs. We can get into that later. No, I'm not sure it is. Well, it is the goal, uh, but why is it the goal? And that's one of the things that I better. come to. I come it's to. it's cheaper because it's No, no, I, I think that that's a mistaken idea. When new technology comes in, mm-hmm. that's the lazy, you know, business person's mm-hmm. answer. We can just do the old thing more cheaply. Right. You know, the real innovation and the real expansion comes when you find new uses. And I think Jeff Bezos is a master of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a piece called Do More, mm-hmm. you know, what Amazon teaches us about uh, robots in the jobless future. Amazon added, you know, 45,000 robots in their warehouses and the result was that they added hundreds of thousands of human workers because they, they upped the ante from two-day shipping to one-day shipping to same-day shipping in many areas. They put more products into their warehouses, uh, you know, increased their ability to you know, service their customers. When you do more, you, know, you actually increase demand. And that's the story of the economy from forever. Perhaps. And it's, I know that. why that is it different? Why is it different this time? Well, I think I, I, I think there's a reason why it's different. I, I do. I think you're being naive that you think they don't want to replace humans completely. If they could, they certainly would. I don't think I don't think they care one way or the other. And I don't think they think about it in those terms. And I don't think they feel like they have a responsibility. For yeah, it. Th- that's I mean, fair. Had, I mean, whatever you want to say about Travis Kalanick, I think he was actually being truthful when he said, I'd like to get rid of drivers, it would be a better business. And he's right. It would be a better business without drivers because you eliminate accidents, you eliminate all kinds of issues. It's, it, I think uh, he he, was, but he's actually wrong. Maybe. He, he, certainly, he might want to eliminate drivers, but he does not want to own the problem of owning all the cars. You know, the real genius of Uber and Lyft, and it was really actually uh, Sidecar and Lyft that introduced the peer-to-peer model, mm-hmm. is that you have more people when you need them. You know, so you scale to demand. Travis invented a black car service, which didn't actually have this vast expansion capability mm-hmm. of demand. The point of when people bring their own car to the party, it means that when there's a lot of demand, you have a lot of cars. 
uh, when there's not much demand, you don't have cars. If Travis had self-driving cars at Uber, unless they were owned by other people, yeah. he'd end up having to own enough cars for the peak demand, and they'd be idle a lot of the time, and his cost structure would go to hell. Sure, I get that. I get that. But other people, there's other ways to do that. I think what he was sure. talking about was a broader issue that if Amazon, well, we'll see what they'll do. Yeah, they'll well, see if they can create more business. That's the story. That's what Mark Andreessen said on stage at, at the Code Conference yeah. this year. There is, though, another point, though, which is, uh, you know, told in this apocryphal conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not even apocryphal. Walter Reuther actually uh, described it. It was a conversation mm-hmm. that he had with uh, some uh, uh, GM or Ford executive. And I think it was a GM executive. And this guy said, uh, you know, showing off his you know, new robots and, and uh, new machinery. And he said, I'd like to see you try to uh, unionize these. Mm-hmm. And Reuther said, I'd like to see you sell them a car. <laughs> you know, and the fact is, if we don't have you know, money in the pockets of consumers, all of these companies fall down. Right. I mean, this is ultimately the, you know, Achilles heel of the jobless future. You know, it's like, who are the customers? Right. If you don't pay them, and if you don't pay them well. Well, there is a scenario where you have a very wealthy group of people and a less wealthy Yeah, and it's a a pretty crappy economy. We we see that in a lot of parts of the world. And if we want to go there, you know, we're crazy. So let's go through the themes of the book. So you're saying WTF, what's the future? So talk about some of the themes you think are important, and we'll get into each of them. Well, uh, you know, I think that one of the really big changes in, in the in the future is that we are in fact living inside uh, these global networks and I'm not just talking about the networks like Google and Facebook and Amazon although they're certainly part of it I'm talking about vast supply chain networks mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm talking about you know real world networks like Uber and Lyft and these things are increasing so the real world is becoming like the digital world mm-hmm. managed by algorithm. Uh, and actually, it's like this funny, complex dance. Uh, you know, it, it's actually a combination. Here are humans who are the managers of a set of algorithmic systems, which in turn might be the manager for another set of humans. You know, you kind of think about that. There's programmers who are the managers of Uber's algorithms, who, which in turn are the managers of, of their uh, drivers. So that's a huge change. But these digital physical systems, so to speak, are a critical part of our economy. And so the lessons of technology platforms ultimately become the lessons of our economy as a whole. And so, and what we see when we look at the history of technology platforms, and mm-hmm. you know, I've been around like you around the industry a long time, mm-hmm. and you look at the short-sightedness that brings down company after company. And it's not the short-sightedness that they didn't see a competitor coming. It's that they became greedy, which meant that, A, they couldn't abandon their existing lucrative business model, and, B, they drove their ecosystem, which invents you know, new things and is a supplier to them, uh, to go look for greener pastures. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I remember something that Walt Mossberg said to me once. He was describing a conversation with Steve Ballmer, and he said, I told Steve, if you would just be 5% less greedy— People would love you 100 percent more, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish I'd put it in the book I, or asked Walt if I could. I didn't think remember it until afterwards. But I was trying to describe mm-hmm. something like, "Here's Google making the same mistakes that Microsoft did. You know, we're just going to take a little bit more and more and more of the ecosystem, and at some point, they're losing their actual competitive advantage. You know, if you look at, for example, Facebook has an owned ecosystem, Google has a non-owned ecosystem." Mm-hmm. And they're 
placing themselves more and more into the world where the, the, the thing that was their unique advantage is being eaten up. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they're going to, you know, uh, they, they risk in, you know, some ways, uh, you know, creating or feeding their worst competitors. Because? Because they have actually failed to understand that they are a marketplace company. Mm-hmm. You know, a marketplace requires two sides. You need sellers and you need buyers. And we, the producers of content on the Internet, are part of an ecosystem. Right. And if they start saying, well, I'm going to pick off all the lucrative niches. Right. What happens? Right. But Facebook's doing the same thing. Exactly. Right. They all Well, exactly. Are. But but Google should be realizing, oh, this is our competitive advantage against Facebook, that mm-hmm. we actually are better for our ecosystem. Right. And, and that should be the competition. You know, uh, uh, it's not just to sort of extract more money f- from the ecosystem. They can't it's, help I, themselves once they get started, can they? Well, it's, it's hard. You know, uh, companies are always short-sighted but people what's, are short-sighted yeah people are short-sighted Com- people who run companies are but you know there's also this really important theme in the book and i actually use an image which is really not as fanciful as it might sound okay. and that is that our financial markets uh, are the first rogue ai mm-hmm. in which hostile to humanity you know we have in fact uh, over the last 30 40 years created a, a global system which has as its objective function which is a term that you know is used in algorithmic systems. This is the thing you're optimizing for. In the book, I call it its fitness function, uh, really, because that's the term that Amazon uses, and that's where I first encountered it. They uh, are optimizing, telling companies, optimize for one thing, one thing only, corporate profit. Mm-hmm. And that's become so enshrined, and it's really ruling you know, every company. So in some sense, that master directive you know, Pedro Dominguez talks about the master algorithm. That is the master algorithm. And it is fundamentally hostile to humanity. And it's leading to, to really suboptimal choices. And I think we really have to understand that we have built a system that we are a part of, that we are in. Because that's the other piece of all this. Mm-hmm. These vast systems, financial markets, Google, Facebook, are these hybrid organisms of humans and machines. So people, when they think about AI, they think about it as this artifact you know, like AlphaGo. And they don't realize that it's the system that we are part of. And that, you know, AI being the collective organisms that we are building and and growing into, and what are we telling those to do? You know, all these people, the Future of Life Institute and so on, they're, they're focused on AI as this thing that happens in the future rather than this is the system that we are living in, right. and we are directing I think they're it. talking about what's being developed, the, the ever smarter computers. Sure, that- sure, but it, it's in the same way that, I remember back around 2003, I gave this series of talks that were called the Open Source Paradigm Shift. Mm-hmm. And I would always ask people in the audience, how many of you use Linux? Mm-hmm. And they would say, you know, you get 10% of the hands or mm-hmm. 80% of the hands, depending on the audience. Yeah. Uh, and then I would say, how many of you use Google? And nearly all the hands would go up. And I go, well, you just told me you think of a computer as the thing on your desk because if you realize that it was the thing in the cloud, you realize you're all using Linux Mm because Google runs on Linux. Right. And that same kind of paradigm shift has to happen today where we realize that an AI is not this thing in the future. Right. We are living in systems in which AI is increasingly a part of the fabric of our 
Right, which reality. I think people do realize that. I don't think that's not the case. I don't think they think it mm-hmm. is the future. Do you think it is? I mean, uh, yeah, I do. I think I think they talk about it, it as something. I think they talk about its dangers, the possible and who and what the inputs are, and who's designing it and mm-hmm. who controls it. I think that's really what. I don't think it that it's not here. Yeah, I, I don't think they. At least I don't see people understanding that we are already living in a world that's dominated by these systems. Okay. All right. I think we do. I think it's just who has it. And yeah, I think okay, it's Google sure. and Facebook and Am- the, just the, the players you would imagine having control of it. And then you have, I guess, an Elon Musk on the other side who's warning about that power. We're going to take a quick break here because I'd like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. This week, we ran a bonus episode of Recode Media where Peter spoke to comedian Jimmy Kimmel. But he'll have another interview tomorrow at his normal time. Peter, who else did you talk to this week? Hello, Kara. Guess who I talked to this week? I'll tell you. Tony Hale, former CEO of Chartbeat. He's got a new product out now called Scroll. He's going to save journalism. How? Well, you got to listen. I'll tell you. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So talk about why it's up to us, because it does not feel like it's up to us. It feels like it's up to Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Page or Jeff Bezos, but not us. Well, yes, I I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Here's the point I I would make. Ideas take hold in, you know, what I've sometimes called the global brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have this idea that the laws of economics are like the laws of physics. And yes, there are laws of economics that have some, you know, aspects like that. But there's others that are much more like the laws, the rules of a game. And I do think that the, that the, the current shape of the economy is dominated by the idea of shareholder value. And, you know, there was a time when the economy was dominated by the divine right of kings and the divine right of nobles, Mm -hmm. and they should own property and other people were their servants. And, you know, we we got rid of that idea. And I think we're in the throes of a period in which technology is going to make possible, you know, great wealth for all people Mm -hmm. or Mm -mm. basically great wealth for a, a small number of people. Right, and, which is doing now. Which is what it's doing now. And I, I actually think that if uh, the people who are, you know, wealthy and powerful now keep on the path that we're going, we are going to see another period of war and revolution and great instability. Mm-hmm. And I think so. Uh, Explain why that is. Explain. Well, uh, first of all, uh, you know, we're already seeing it. So you have a great group of people who own the top of the food chain, and they have a, lo- right. a lot of the money. You have a group down at the bottom, a small group too, who just is hopeless about the future. That's right. right. And you have, and then in the middle, everybody else sort of sits there, worried, interested, worried, at risk. Yeah, and in fact, that describes you know parts of the world that mm-hmm. we don't like very much. Mm-hmm. And I think what you end up seeing is it, it eventually translates into the political sphere. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're seeing that here in America right now. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a big backlash coming against elites. In certain periods in the past, it has actually uh, been extremely destructive for those elites. And we look back and say, couldn't they see it coming? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was used to wonder that about the French Revolution. Couldn't those aristocrats see what they were Mm -hmm. about to encounter? You know, the aristocrats in Russia before the Russian Revolution. Couldn't they see it coming? And, you know, we're right blindly like half-witted gathering swine rushing mm-hmm. over the same cliff. Yeah. And what do you, why is that? What, is it just a lack of awareness or uh, what do you think it is? You know, I think it's, it's, it, it is greed. It's, it's lack of awareness. It's also just the, 
you know, th- there's these fixed ideas, and ideas change. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I do think I mean, there's also a real gulf, you know, and, and there is a I think, well, you know, in an odd way, I think we may be saved by climate change. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> because right. just in the way that, that World War II is what pulled us out of uh, the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we realized that, you know, we had to actually invest in the future because it was things were so bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we might end up uh, having, you know, events like that, you know, in, in a bad, you know, in a very dismaying WTF future. You know, we do end up with war and you know, we, an instability that we don't get out of, you know, that's what happened, you know, to the Roman Empire, you know, so we, we definitely have very dark, uh, you know, the possibility of very bright futures or very dark futures. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has a lot to do with the choices that we make. Mm-hmm. You know, it is possible. You look at the immense innovation, for example, that happened in the New Deal. You look at the immense leadership that happened with the Marshall Plan after World War II. This was amazing stuff where people, or actually, look at the high school movement. Mm-hmm. All these people. It started in you know small towns and counties in in the Midwest, where it was mm-hmm. like our kids aren't going to have to work on the farm. We right. better educate them. And you know, we went from nine percent of kids in high school in 1909 to seventy percent in you know 25 years later. It was like this realization that we got to do something different. And, Absolutely. And, and we could do that again. What is holding that back? Because I find most of these people absolutely uninterested in in these issues. And they they ascribe the populism thing to something else. I think it comes right out of people feeling hopeless about the future and realizing they do not have the levers with which to control their future or the education or the skills. And, you know, they do visits to different parts of the country. You have Mark Zuckerberg wandering around the country talking to people in the Midwest or – uh, visits, you know, trying to figure out how to get uh, coal miners who code yeah. and things like that. And to me, it, it's a real, these are small solutions to a very big problem, which is that a lot of our population, one, could be jobless, you know, it could be, or we have to figure out the new, what the new jobs are. And another part of our population is, is gaining enormously from it, like with obscene amounts of wealth. Yeah. And they they seem to think that that's okay. Yeah. That that's, I do think that— It may be okay. It's just going to end badly. There was a, a study that I just read about today out of Stanford of mm-hmm. political uh, opinions of mm-hmm. uh, Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs. And one of the things that was really interesting about it was that by a large majority, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs said tax us more. Mm-hmm. You know, get get yes. right. You know, so they were they're kind of in some ways we're breaking some of the left right lock. You yeah. know, uh, where we have these two menu options. You know, and and the two fixed uh, you know menus, and you take all the values of this and all of or all the values of that, and it's like no, we want the low regulation side, but we want to be taxed more, and we want to have better social services. And so there is a possibility of uh, a different politics uh, coming. You know, in the next you know couple of elections. And it'll be really interesting to see if we can shape that. Uh, well, or, or have the interest, because, I mean, we just did a big piece on Reid Hoffman, who's finally sort of publicly talking about it. But most mm-hmm. tech people like to stay away from politics. They like to remove themselves for years and years. And I, I think that was the trope, of course, but it's actually very true, is that they now feel they must enter the, the mm-hmm. pictures, but it's still... Very yeah. slow, very slow, given the given the stakes and given the incompetence but, but, of government. But again, though, um, it's not necessarily up to the tech people. Why not? Well, because— You've got money and means. That's all it takes to make it in politics. You could, Oh, come yeah. on. Finance did it. Uh, Hollywood did it. No, I understand. Yeah. But, uh, but the point is that you do have counter— 
counter pressure. Sure. You look at the Tea Party and what they, yeah. uh, it, I hate to say accomplished uh, because mm-hmm. it was not very, but, you know, political pressure by large groups of people is a counterweight. Mm-hmm. And, and that political pressure comes when people believe something different. And ultimately, you know, this is one of the things uh, uh, about a book I, uh, that I've loved in the last couple of years, Sapiens by mm-hmm. uh, Yuval Everybody Noah Harari. Uh, you know, he really makes the point, which, of course, George Soros made years ago, that so many uh, of the things that matter in society are reflexive. They're, they're the result of what we believe. Mm-hmm. And so changing what people believe is possible and what people believe is right is one of the greatest levers that we have as human beings. And, and I think, you know, part of what happened that got us into our current straits is you know, Milton Friedman and Jensen and Meckling with the whole shareholder value hypothesis got us to believe something that has had a very pernicious effect. And if we can get, uh, you know, the world believing something different, we can actually change well, what we I don't do. know, but I think some of these people do have a hold of some of the greatest communications systems on the planet. I think they do seem to have some sort of leverage there. They just are very loath to use it. In fact, their tools get used by others much more deftly that, that's than right. themselves. Well, that's right. And that's a good reason why, uh, you know, as these, and you look at someone like Mark, he is trying not to, you know, put his thumb on the scale. He's trying to say, what does the community want to say? And mm-hmm. so, yes, you know, it could be that the voice of the community will lead us to a new politics. Mm-hmm. Except What's wrong with putting your thumb on the scale when you own the scale? Like you don't, you know what I mean? Like you, it's it's an interesting thing of not wanting to get involved and then going to your. These are the companies that are going to suffer from it eventually. The people that created the tools to create sort of they're like creating their own weapon of their own destruction in some ways. Yeah, that's kind of human history. I guess. Yeah, I in know. A nutshell. Yeah, I guess. Thank you. Anytime. Um, so let's talk about some other themes. What other themes do you think when you say the future? What do you think are other critical themes? Oh well, well, it's just I mean, just coming much more narrowly mm-hmm. to technology uh, and away from the you know questions of jobs mm-hmm. and the economy. The I think uh, they're linked. In ex- in ex- they, they, they are linked. But there's some amazing next steps. You right. know, one of the things that you know, we forget about technology is it takes a long time to mature and really have the, as much impact as we mm-hmm. think it ought to. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you look at the history. Uh, James Besson has written this wonderful book called Learning by Doing, uh, which unfortunately is not on Audible as far as I can tell, by, about the mills in 1840s Lowell mm-hmm. and why it took so long uh, for these, this new equipment to show up in the productivity statistics. Mm-hmm. And, and it basically makes the point that you need a fully trained workforce. Mm-hmm. The technology needs to develop. You know, you need people who can fix things. Mm-hmm. You really have this ecosystem that has to develop. So Around that's why it takes it. And, and I look at what's happened with the Internet. It's exactly mm-hmm. the same. You know, there were, there were a small number of people in the beginning who could do everything. And now we've you know, ramified it out. And there's, you know, not just the one webmaster, there's front end engineers, back end engineers, uh, you know, uh, site reliability engineers, uh, there's SEO people and social media marketing people and this whole ecosystem of firms. And, and, and then all of a sudden we say, oh, wait, we can start to move this into mobile. And then we say, oh, well, mobile, that's just, you know, just like, uh, mm-hmm. the screen except it's smaller and then all of a sudden you realize no it has all these new capabilities and then you go from you know Google Maps uh, you know uh, which was on your your desktop to being on your phone and then you go oh wait we could actually use that to summon cars and you know so we're just really understanding 
what comes next in this ambient technology world. And, you know, I, I think there's going to be this amazing, you know, confluence of uh, sort of better speech recognition, uh, augmented reality, mm-hmm. um, new kinds of content that are, are made for that world in which we are really very much on demand in, 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 in everything. And we kind mm-hmm. of are talking to our environment and getting, you know, intelligent responses back. And this, and there's also amazing, you know, things that can be done with AI in, you know, in healthcare, in developing new ways and even new mm-hmm. art forms. I mean, there's just this amazing economy ahead of us. And it's so interesting to me that we only think that technology eliminates jobs because we don't really see where the new jobs it eliminates yeah. them in one part of the economy there's a great example in alexis madrigal's uh, containers podcast where he talks about uh, you know the disappearance of longshoremen mm-hmm. but then using the lens of the specialty coffee market how labor has been put back into the system because you used to get be able to right. get a full container load of coffee ship it off you know to starbucks or wherever mm-hmm. and now you have uh you know single origin coffees so uh, you can get a full container load maybe from this particular you mm-hmm. know, plantation in Honduras or whatever. Uh, but then it's going to be roasted by a bunch of different roasters, and they want right. 12 different single-origin coffees. And so in comes that container into this giant you know, operation in Emeryville where mm-hmm. it gets packaged out. Again, it has to actually you – know, the, the longshoremen are no longer on the dock – they're in these these shipping. Well, it's not the same people necessarily. No, no, it's not the same people, and that's the point. Right. But there are new jobs. You know, right. you, you look at this recently. Started Michael Mandel has done some work actually showing that you know the, all the, the retail job apocalypse seems to be illusory too, because there are actually being more people hired uh, in warehouse jobs than are being lost in retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also, you know, uh, I think had, the issue is the shift, and I, I get your point. Again, Mark Andreessen pushed this; it's going to be much better. It's just they don't have the answers now, and the and the the journey getting there is going mm-hmm. to be very painful. It always is. It might be very painful. I think the I think it's going to be much quicker and more. It's I think the farm to manufacturing economy was seventy years. This could be compressed in a much tighter time. But I think well, well, again, with the benefit of historical it's hindsight, already, yes. we're already 30, 40 years into okay. it. Okay, I, I see your point. But yeah. see, to me, whatever you think about Donald Trump, I think he's got a lizard brain for understanding fear and yeah. and not just fear, but things you should be afraid of. And I think that's what he's tapping. People, he's tapping into fear. I'm like, mm, sometimes fear is right. Like, maybe it is scary. He just he just laces it with racism and everything else. Yeah, exactly. Create a real toxic no crew. But ultimately, you know, when he started attacking Amazon, I thought, found that fascinating because everyone's like, oh, this is wrong. I go, no, he knows something. He sees. He sees something maybe not on purpose, for sure not on purpose, because he's attacking them for taxes when really – it's very clear Amazon's doing something to the economy that's really disturbing. It, it will hurt a lot of people. You really maybe helping. So? I'm not sure. I think I buy it's. That. I think that's what he's feeling. I think, and I think that's what people feel. Like, oh, I, see, I think he's attacking Amazon because Jeff bought the Washington Post. Well, that too. Yeah. Yes, but that's part of it. But I think in the back of his lizard brain, there's also something of truth there, where he he knows that's the enemy to attack, and I think that's what's interesting. Is because I think probably if I had to pick any company affecting the country more, it would be Amazon. You know, it's interesting because I used to have a lot of... I'm not scared of them. I I used to have a lot of skepticism about Amazon that they would, you know, get to a a dominant position and then Mm -hmm. use it to, you Mm -hmm. know, and then exploit it. But I see Amazon getting better on all those Right, no, but they're certainly getting, it doesn't, better or not, it's powerful. It's like, it's it's something to be like nervous about. But there are some serious 
really powerful companies. You have to actually sure. stop thinking. No, there's not something. I mean, they're, 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 all, they're all competitors now. They're not behind the scenes. And if, if you they're want to have power, yeah. uh, look at, at, at financial firms. Right. 4% of employment in America, 25% mm-hmm. of all corporate profits. Right. Okay, that's... Now that's a powerful industry. Yes, and, and they're quiet. Anything. They're quiet about it. That's they're right. not like they don't buy Whole Foods. They don't and, buy the and, Washington and, Post. And not only that, they're not delivering value. Right. I mean, that's an extractive industry that you know. I mean, again, Amazon, Google, Facebook are delivering real value in yes. exchange for their profits. But there is a, a huge industry of people. And actually, there's this amazing. If you go look at the uh, slide deck that Nelson Pell's, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, uh, the activist investors mm-hmm. firm put together about GE back in 2015. It's so eye-opening because it describes what a great business GE is in terms of everything in the real economy. Their dominant market share, they're growing faster than their competitors, they're streamlining the business in ways that will make it more efficient. There's only one problem, it hasn't moved the stock price. Right. You know, So let's borrow money uh, to do stock buybacks to fix the stock price. The stock price isn't GE's problem. Right. It's, it's basically just an opportunity for these guys to strip mine value Absolutely. out of well, the company. Hello. Nice to Wall Street, yeah. And it's just like that is the paradigm of so much of, of you know the, the sort of so-called wealth creation in our country is just basically playing. It's, it's, the, it's the basically no, the financial equivalent of no, fake I, news. I, I get your point. I just think it's stupid not to be worried about these companies because of the because they, they do have influence that is social, it's consumer, it's but you know, but it's sort of interesting. Again, I I do think it's so easy to demonize tech. I think they make it easy to do it, and you can you can actually f- almost physically or viscerally feel their power more so than say a financial institution or the military industrial complex, which we know are sitting in the shadows, moving things around rather deftly. So talk about that idea of why tech is demonized and whether they deserve it. Well, I guess what I would say is that they are simply the most visible incarnation of a change that is making people uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, they're also, you know, you have these people who are getting astonishingly rich, but they're not getting astonishingly rich because necessarily of the scale of the companies. They're getting rich in the market of expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, there are companies where, you know, that have created Silicon Valley billionaires that have not made a penny right. of profit. Yeah. It's basically they just won in this game of effectively. Well, Tesla's a good example and being same yeah, amount. As the of, car, if you think, I'm talking about Wall Street valuations, not in the quality of its, its products. Yeah, I mean, Tesla and Amazon are examples of using financial markets correctly. Mm-hmm. That is, Take uh, it, the money, use it. Use it to, create, build, to, to build, build to build something, something you couldn't do without the moats, cap. Without the moats, cap. you build all kinds of Well, things. you just, you know, you build. Your business. You build a business. As opposed to, uh, you know, you have a business that you're able to sell people. That, you know, Snap's a great example, you know, just like they don't actually have a business yet. Twitter doesn't really have a business yet. Yeah. And, you know, it's not financeable, you know, long term. You know, in that way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you don't have a plan for becoming a real business, you're kind of ripping people off long term mm-hmm. if you go public. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. and you have they to never get seem there. To mind, yeah. And and so, the you know, I, I you know, I kind of watched that with AOL. You know, it kind of went from you know whatever twenty billion to two hundred forty billion and back to twenty. You mm-hmm. know, and that money kind of went into a lot of people's pockets along the they way. They did. It did. Yeah. And and so th- there's really this. Um, Again, this is sort of part of, you know, I, just we need to actually build a language for understanding that financial market valuations are not the same as real the real market 
you know, impact of a company. So that's where I wanted to say I want to get back to coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I learned in uh, Alexis Madrigal's um, podcast was this just the scale of some of these these importing companies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like 60, 70, 100 billion dollar companies, mm-hmm. you know, and just like the tech companies. Right. You know, they're just not sexy. Right. You know, and, and there's a lot of companies that actually have, you know, they have real businesses, real profits, real power. And they're just and and they're just as intrinsic, maybe more intrinsic. You think about mm-hmm. the people who ship the goods around the world, if they you know, they wanted to strangle us. They do it a hell of a lot faster than. Oh, absolutely, than and they want to automate faster. Right. But and- but the point that I would make is, you know, part of why we see the tech companies is so powerful is they're the hot, new, sexy companies. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's really all about their stock market valuation. And you saw this again and again with with, with a company like Uber. Everybody said, "Well, they're worth so much," and I go, "Well, they're worth so much because." That's, you know, somebody guess about what they're worth. It's not what they're actually... Well, of course, that's the age-old thing about tag and some of these companies with these... But, but in general, you know, I would bet that there will be a time in our lifetimes, and it's maybe 10, 15, years, 20 years from now, when the whole of Silicon Valley will look back and go, oh, yeah, you know, that was an amazing period, mm-hmm. you know? And just like, you know, Roch- Kodak made Rochester and, you know, Buffalo was mm-hmm. once the city of light in the early days of electrification. We'll go, yeah, that was the early days of the computer revolution. Those those dinosaurs, you know, because we'll be in Unless some bio... they innovate. So let's talk... Well, we'll be in and, some biotech future yeah, or whatever. You yeah, know? maybe so. You're right. I suppose biotech. So what are the seeds of that happening? Or how, or can these companies avoid that? Or is it just inevitable that this happens? Well, Rome, Rome always falls, I guess. You know, again, I, I think that the idea that, you know, the, the financial market valuation, which is, is you know, based a lot on people's, it's really people's bet on the future, mm-hmm. which may or may not come true. You know, I mean, Amazon, you know, worth hundreds of time, a dollar of profit for mm-hmm. Amazon worth hundreds of dollars in stock market valuation, mm-hmm. you know, versus, you know, what, 26 or 29, I think, for Google. Mm-hmm. I mean, is is really, you know, Amazon you know, worth 10 times as much in the expectation value Mm -hmm. as Google is? I don't really think so. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that people feel like they understand Google's prospects, whereas Amazon is still wildly unknown. And, and of course, Amazon is able to trade on that value, but that won't always be the case. Right. And then you eventually you come down to what is the real business? And part of this for me, I, I run a private company in this world of Silicon Valley, which is so crazy. I am in the real economy where people give me money for things that I do. I don't get money from people kind of mm-hmm. thinking, wow, you might be something else in the future. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, So you think they'll come down to earth? In they will way. come down to earth, and then we'll realize, that, oh, actually, maybe they weren't so powerful after all. Well, it's sort of like Microsoft. Remember how scared everyone was at Microsoft, mm-hmm. and then they weren't. Yeah, and Microsoft has sort of had to be uh, humbler, and I think they're a better company for it. Sure. So what can they do to stave that off, to create innovation perpetually, or is that just impossible? Well, you know, there are certainly examples of companies that have lasted hundreds of years reinventing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see even ones that have managed for hundreds, you know, like Nokia. Mm-hmm. Know, they were a rubber company or something mm-hmm. originally. They were yeah. some crazy thing. That, right. And they, they went through two or three complete you know, mm-hmm. corporate reinventions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then they finally kind of hit the wall. Right. So, it, you know, it, it does you know, happen even to companies that have successfully reinvented themselves. GE is a great example of a company that's right. been around hundreds of years and, and keeps, you know, reinventing itself. 
and it's really kind of sad to see them, you know, a, a really good business that doesn't actually need money from financial markets being raided by financial markets uh, because we basically built so, again. So, but, so I think the solution. I think the solution is probably is ultimately in the political sphere, mm-hmm. and it, and and really in the sphere of ideas. Uh, Milton Friedman once said something really interesting, or wrote something really interesting, which is the job of people like him, and I think of people mm-hmm. like me, mm-hmm. is to develop ideas that are waiting around for, for when the time comes, mm-hmm. <laughs> when mm-hmm. they're needed. Right. And uh, I think we're in a time period where uh, we need some fresh ideas about how the economy might work. All right, give me two. Before we- okay, uh, well, so jumping to short-term, you mm-hmm. know, things that we, we should be doing, uh, clearly financial transactions tax, slow down the, the market. Uh, look at what do we mean by in our tax system? They're starting to talk about tax simplification. And I, I would say, let's actually look at this as a map of the world and say, does it match correctly? So here I've been building a business for 40 years, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, somebody buys a stock, which is this financial representation of a business, and they hold it for a year. And if I sold O'Reilly and they sold their stock, we'd both get the same capital gains mm-hmm. tax treatment. You know, or you look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who, you know, out of his, you know, inventiveness and genius, you know, and and his investors, and same thing with any of these great Silicon Valley companies, took some real risk and mm-hmm. built a company. And then you just look at somebody who just placed a bet, right? You know, and you know, on what direction a stock would go. That's not actually a useful economic activity. Oh, okay, so you want to get rid of Wall Street? Yeah, okay. I would right. get rid of you know. I, I would like just it. basically I would tax it very differently. All right, okay. I would, yeah, and I they're think if you tax that. it, yeah, they're they're going to hate it. But yeah, I mean, they're I not going to do it. Well, All yeah, right. and then uh, I, I think the understanding that uh, you know investing in people I think really matters, mm-hmm. and I think we really need to actually tilt the playing field back towards giving people more ability to organize, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their labor, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, we've been very labor union hostile. Right. Uh, I think labor unions deserved it because they became corrupt and and, mm-hmm. uh, and broke things. But I think we basically have to actually give people the ability to say, no, I don't, I don't like that deal. Right. Uh, I think we really could look very, very differently at the social safety net. Mm-hmm. We clearly have to make government work better because right, right now it's, it's delegitimized by the fact that it's several uh, you know generations of Moore's law behind the private sector. Right, right. I think that we 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 need to completely rethink education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we all need. And these to, are a lot of big things. Mm-hmm, they yeah. are. There's yeah. a lot of big things mm-hmm. that are all, all needed, and they can happen. Mm-hmm. Change can happen. Where do you imagine it happening, given the political situation now? Well, what should Silicon Valley do right now? What would you like? They they object to DACA. They'll object to immigration, which is, which is just reactive, right? Uh, um, so what should they? I agree with you. Yeah, they should have seen it coming. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that first of all, we need to see the emergence of candidates who are not, uh, you know, focus grouping things to death. People who have ideas and principle and are basically trying to make their case and get get chosen on the basis of real ideas about what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, you know, it's like the thing that's sort of interesting, you know, what Trump did do mm-hmm. was he, he broke free of all these sort of tired formulas. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so and, he's a gift to us. And, and oh, people, nice. yeah, I mean, there's this whole idea of the Overton window. What's thinkable? And mm-hmm. he basically ch- kind of shattered, you know, the window. Mm-hmm. And we have an opportunity to kind of revisit a lot of issues where it was just like, no, that's unthinkable. Oh, that's unthinkable. That's unthinkable. And now it's like everything's thinkable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in you know, 2020, whether we get candidates who just kind of go back to the same tired old, mm-hmm. you know, uh, left-right formulas, or we have people who come along and say, no, no, actually, we really have ideas to try something really differently. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, so much to learn from Silicon Valley that is not, you know, hey, we're so great. It's, yeah. it's just like, how do we actually try things? You know, I mean, right. and one of the things that's great, if you look at the history of the New Deal was, how you know Roosevelt's team were very much like Silicon Valley startup. They were like, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know, this is a desperate situation. You know, we've got to pivot. We got to yeah. try this. Yeah. You know, oh, it didn't work. Stop right. it. Do something else." Right. Versus, you know, the typical government thing is, "Well, we have this idea. A bunch of people got in a room. They decided to do it, and then they, you know, well, we can't revisit that for ten years. We just right. did it. You know, even right. though it's not working. Right. You know, and, and so bringing that. So, do you imagine Silicon Valley will do that? I don't. No, I don't think Silicon Valley will do that. But I do but think kidding. I do think that you know we are seeing at least the possibility of and again we do the, a lot of this work at code for america in the operations mm-hmm. of government but you know can you get it into politics where we kind of go yeah let's be yeah. honest about our right. you know we had this idea about a policy it's not working right. let's try something else and i'd love mm-hmm. to see candidates who just spoke truth mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to, well, this is this is the art, you know, because, yes, politics is the art of the possible in the in the fact that you have to make deals. But mm-hmm. it's not the art of the possible. And we're not even going to talk about what we ought to be doing because mm-hmm. people don't want to hear it. All right. And let, final closing. What When you say it's up to us, what's the most important thing you would urge people to do just as in briefly? Boy, that's kind of a question I should have an easy answer to. And I'll have to work on it. All right. The, the, probably the single most important up to us thing mm-hmm. is to believe that things can be different than they are mm-hmm. and draw outside the lines. Right. You know, rewrite the map. That's what entrepreneurs do all the time. They don't just kind of work within the confines of the current system and say, uh, well, you know, we can't do that because it's never been done before. And we have to do that with our society. Right. You know, we have a new set of tools. Let's make the world fresh. And I think those of us who've been in tech uh, have been trained in that. Now, let's start applying that to the world's great problems. All right, Tim, that's a very hopeful outlook. I'm feeling better. Not Thanks. that much better. I'm still <laughs> feeling bad about DACA. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. The book is called WTF. It doesn't stand for What the Fuck. It's What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with Bears in the Streets author Lisa Dickey, LinkedIn founder Reed Hoffman, and investor Chamath Palihapitiya, just to name a few. You can find those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no BS interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Recode Decode. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. 
I'll be back here at my usual time on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. Hey, Recode Decode fans. This is Sarah Cliff with a new podcast suggestion for you. It's called The Impact, and every week we have stories about real people. I got pregnant two months after I graduated high school. It was not planned. (laughs) We look at the policies that shape those people's lives. Too often here in D.C., we stop talking about laws after they pass. But on The Impact, we will follow those policies out into the real world where all of us live. It's just fantastic. It's just great. Subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast app you like the most.